Without further ado, here's Dave Scheib. All right. So we, we need the candy and eggs because we're having an Easter egg hunt between services. So um, if you could help out with that, that would be greatly appreciated. Well, good morning. Welcome to TBA. It's a pleasure to be with you uh, here this morning. Today we're going to wrap up our Joshua series. If you've been with us throughout this series, then you've witnessed this amazing journey that this new generation of Israelites has taken in order to get into and take the land that was promised to them through Abraham. This is the generation who did what their parents couldn't do. This is the generation that was obedient and trusted in the Lord. And through that obedience and trust, God did great things through them. Joshua had led Israel through the conquest of Cana, and now they possessed the land. And while Joshua's generation lived, the memory of God's mighty works remained, and God was worshipped. Joshua's generation could be called the greatest generation of their time. Theirs was the generation who, by the grace of God, defeated the Amalekites, crossed the Jordan River on dry ground, seen the walls of Jericho come down, and for whom the sun even stood still. Under Joshua, they secure a large portion of the promised land. But there's still work to do because they haven't conquered all the land yet. And Joshua, nearing the end of his life, understands that finishing the job is going to fall to the next generation. So he renews the covenant between them and God again. And Brian talked about this last week. And Joshua offers this charge to the people of Israel. He says, So fear the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly. Put away forever the idols your ancestors worshipped when they lived beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. Serve the Lord alone. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today who you will serve. Would you prefer the gods of your ancestors that you served beyond the Euphrates, or will it be the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live? But for me... And my family, we will serve the Lord. And so the people, they respond enthusiastically. The people said, we will never abandon the Lord and serve other gods. For the Lord our God is the one who rescued us and our ancestors from slavery in the land of Egypt. He performed mighty miracles before our very eyes. As we traveled through the wilderness among our enemies, he preserved us. It was the Lord who drove out the Amorites and the other nations living here in the land. So we too will serve the Lord, for he alone is our God. But sadly, this is not what happens. Because when Joshua's generation died off, so did the memory of God, who had given them so many victories. This generation to whom God had been so faithful spawned a generation that was completely faithless to him. And so that's where we're going to pick up today. We're going to pick up our story, and we're going to finish actually in the book of Judges. The book of Judges, if you haven't read it, is a very riveting book to read. I highly recommend that you read it. Things get really dark and crazy in the book of Judges. They get extreme. But no matter how dark the cloud is, God is always present. He's always working, always aiming at saving his people. But So if you haven't read it, I recommend that you read it. But you have this huge contrast between the closing chapters of Joshua where you see a nation who is resting from war and enjoying the riches that God's given them in the promised land. And then you get into the book of Judges and and Judges pictures Israel suffering from invasion and slavery and poverty and civil war. So what happens? What happens between these two books? Well, the nation of Israel quickly decays after a new generation takes over. 
a generation that knew neither Joshua nor Joshua's God. In Judges 2, it says, And the Israelites served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the leaders who outlived him, those who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. After that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. Instead of exhibiting spiritual fervor, Israel sinks into apathy. And instead of obeying the Lord, they move to apostasy. And instead of a nation enjoying law and order, the land was filled with anarchy. And the book of Judges reveals dark, dark times for the Israelites. And one or two things are true. Either the older generation failed to instruct their children and grandchildren in the ways of the Lord, or if they had faithfully, faithfully taught them, then this new generation had refused to submit to God's laws and follow God's ways. And sadly, that's happening today with our current generation. I shared with you a few weeks ago the statistic that says that half, half of the kids who grow up in church, half of our kids, leave and never come back to faith. And we talked about the responsibility of teaching our kids the ways of God and that the command in Deuteronomy to teach your children God's laws is still a command for us today. And I want to show you how important that is as we take this command seriously because the statistic that I shared with you is over 10 years old. It's a 10-year-old statistic. But things haven't gotten bad, better in the last 10 years. The Barna Group just released this past week a new study. And quite honestly, it shocked me when I read it. I was, it. It shocked me. They found that this new generation of millennials, your kids and my kids, that in this new generation, only one, one out of 25 have a biblical worldview. Meaning one out of 25 know God's commands and follow them. One out of 25. I don't know about you, but to me that is a very scary statistic. And asked how likely it is that millennials will eventually embrace a biblical worldview, Barna said this. He said, remember, a person's worldview is typically developed between the ages of 18 months and 13 years. There is usually very little movement in a worldview after that point. You could say with confidence that the worldview a person possesses at the age of 13 is probably the worldview they will die with. Unless pre-existing patterns radically change, we are not likely to ever see the millennial generation reach even 10% who have a biblical worldview. Barna went on to identify one of the most important implications of the situation. He said, parents are one of the most important influences on the worldview of their children, and millennials are getting ready to enter into their childbearing years. But because 24 out of 25 millennials lack a biblical worldview today, the probability of them transmitting uh, that information to their children is extremely low. He said, you cannot give what you don't have. In other words, if today's children are going to eventually embrace a biblical worldview, people with such a perspective must exert substantial influence on the nation's children to supply what their parents are unable to give them. Do you realize that these trends hold true, and it looks like they will, that if these trends hold true, we are literally only one generation away 
from being just like the Israelites in verse 10. A generation that did not acknowledge the Lord. And just like it did for Israel, it will have devastating, devastating consequences for our nation and for the church in America. So I'm going to encourage you again, one more time, to get involved. Don't sit back and let this generation walk away from their faith. Don't sit back and do nothing. You are valued and needed in the lives of this generation. And you have something to offer. Every single person has something to offer. The children's ministry, it, 13 years, that's from birth to 13 years, that's all we got. That's all we got. Get involved in children's ministry. Get involved in youth ministry. Don't let this generation walk away. We don't have any excuse if they walk away and do nothing. Get involved. Okay, so let's take a look at what happened to Israel, and maybe it'll give us some insight into our own problems, and maybe we can learn from their mistakes. The book of Judges starts with a series of victories and defeats that took place after the death of Joshua. The boundary lines for the 12 tribes had already been determined well before, but the people hadn't fully claimed their inheritance by defeating and dislodging the entrenched enemy. And so Judges 1 starts out like this. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord which tribe should go first to attack the Canaanites. The Lord answered, Judah, for I have given them victory over the land. So everything starts out the way it should be. The people, now without a leader, turn to God for their direction. They're eager to finish the job, and they know the only way it's going to happen is with the power of the Lord. And here's how they respond. The men of Judah said to the relatives from the tribe of Simeon, join us and fight against the Canaanites living in the territory allotted to us. Then we will help you conquer your territory. So the men of Simeon went with Judah. Now it seems like a really, really small thing, but Judah turning to Simeon to ask for help is the beginning of the fracturing of obedience and faithfulness of Israel. And so here's the first thing that we can learn. Compromise leads to defeat. Now, to, from our perspective, you might say, well, what's the big deal about asking for help? I mean, after all, if you put yourself in Judah's shoes and you look at the Canaanites who were big and strong and had strong cities with thick walls and strong iron gates, they had warriors with iron swords and shields and chariots, if you put yourself in their shoes, you might say, well, we need help. We need some backup. But that isn't what God said. God said, Judah, Judah, you go and fight not Judah and Simeon, and in one small act of compromise, it showed that Judah didn't believe that God would deliver on his promise. They didn't think it was possible to win the battle alone. Judah was basically saying, God, you don't know what you're doing. We know what we need to do to accomplish the goal. And there would be consequences for this. This first act of disobedience would filter to the other tribes. Here's what happens. The Lord was with the people of Judah, and they took possession of the hill country, but they failed to drive out the people living in the plains who had iron chariots. Judah was able to take the hill country, but when it came to the cities on the plains, they couldn't drive them out. They had chariots. And even with the help of Simeon, they're unable to drive the Canaanites out. And then you have the tribe of Joseph, who tries to claim their inheritance in verse 23. Maybe. You may have to switch it for me because I don't know my clicker's working. 
There we go. They sent men out to scout Bethel. They confronted a man coming out of the town and said to him, Show us a way into the town, and we will have mercy on you. So he showed them a way in, and they killed everybody in the town except that man and his family. And later the man moved to the land of the Hittites, where he built a town, and he named it Ludes, which is the name of the town today. Now on the face of it, this seems like a savvy and smart way to conquer the city of Bethel with minimal loss of life for the Israelites. All it cost them was to spare one family. Sure, God commanded that they kill every man, woman, and child in the land, but certainly God would understand if we spared one family. I mean, we took the city. Bethel is now Israelite territory. But it's that last line. It's that last line in verse 26 for me that shows the consequence of their compromise. Because the man they spared apparently had a city planning degree and the ability to recruit and reproduce rapidly because they started a whole new city. The Israelites' compromise actually created an opportunity for another Canaanite city to grow up. And the compromise of their faith created more Canaanites, which made their job even harder. It made the problem worse. And for the rest of chapter 1, you see that tribe after tribe goes out and fights and is unable to drive out the enemy. Seven times, seven times the author uses the phrase, did not drive out. Seven times the author notes the decision of the Israelites to leave the Canaanites in the land. Seven times the author uses the words did not instead of could not. Did not instead of could not. And the most devastating compromise in this account is that in multiple verses, the Israelites choose to keep the Canaanites as slaves. The text says that the Canaanite present isn't because the Israelites couldn't push them out, but that the tribes made a choice to disobey God and keep the Canaanites around. And Judges 2 starts with this. It says, The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said to the Israelites, I brought you out of the land of Egypt into this land that I swore to give to your ancestors. And I said I would never break my covenant with you. But for your part, you were not to make covenants with the people living in this land. Instead, you were to destroy their altars, but you disobeyed my command. Why did you do this? So now I declare that I will no longer drive out the people living in your land. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a constant temptation to you. And so the Canaanites, with all their pagan gods, their attractive daughters, their strong sons, would now stand in the land, stay in the land and inhabit the land that God had given to Israel. And that would be a big, big, big deal for Israel. And it brings us to the next point. Compromise leads to imitation. Compromise leads to imitation. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, and they served the images of Baal. They abandoned the Lord, their God of their ancestors, who brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them. And they angered the Lord, and they abandoned the Lord to serve Baal and the images of Asheroth. See, the Jews eventually became so accustomed to the sinful ways of their pagan neighbors that those ways didn't seem so sinful anymore. And the Jews became interested in how their neighbors worshipped until finally Israel started to live like their enemies and imitate their ways. See, the temptation 
to compromise with the world is greater now than it ever has been. See, instead of standing for truth, we accept the idea that there are many truths. It's a pluralistic theology that is sweeping through the church. And I talked about it two weeks ago. It's this idea that there is no standard set by God. What's right for you is right for you. What's right for me is right for me. Nothing is really right and wrong. And when we compromise with the world, we can never have victory over the sin in our lives because we won't even admit that we have sin in our lives. And that's what's happening to so many Christians today. That's why one out of 25 millennials, only one out of 25 have a biblical worldview. James 4.4 says the first step away from the Lord is friendship with the world doesn't mean that you can't have any non-Christian friends. What James is saying is when your beliefs and your values line up with your non-Christian friends, when your worldview lines up with theirs, it's the first step away from the Lord. And then according to 1 John 2.15, you begin to love the world, and you actually love living for yourself more than you love living for God. And once we start to love the world, Romans 12.2 says that we become conform to this world. In other words, you can't tell the difference between the way you live and the way the world lives. And basically, if you were accused in a court of law of being a Christian, they couldn't find any evidence in your speech or actions to convict you. Do you see how slippery this slope is? How slippery it is? Because compromise, the smallest compromise, leads to imitation. And it will eventually lead to condemnation, which is our last point. Compromise leads to condemnation. They abandoned the Lord to serve Baal in the images of Asheroth, and this made the Lord burn with anger against Israel. So he handed them over to the raiders who stole their possessions. He turned them over to their enemies all around, and they were no longer able to resist them. Every time Israel went out to battle, the Lord fought against them, causing them to be defeated just as he had warned, and the people were in great distress. See, the sin that we fail to conquer in our lives will eventually conquer us. The people of Israel found themselves enslaved to one pagan nation after another as the Lord kept his word and disciplined his people. And the biggest danger of being conformed to the world is it leads to being condemned with the world. I say this to our teens all the time, but you can't live in two worlds. You can't live in two worlds. Oh, we try to. We try to keep a foot in both worlds, but we're just fooling ourselves. We really are. Because the truth is, is you're either following God or you're not following him. There is no in-between. There is no sitting on the fence. There is no middle ground. And there is absolutely no compromise when it comes to God. Our God is not a part-time God. He is an all-life-consuming God, and he requires all of your life, all of you, and all of your obedience. When you live for the world, you die with the world. You can never be a conquering Christian if you've already become a compromised Christian. Let me say that again. You will never be a conquering Christian if you've already become a compromised Christian. We will never fulfill the vision that God has for this church if compromise is in the equation. 
We will never have an impact on the direction of the millennials or the direction of our society if compromise is in the equation. We just won't. One of the key verses in the book of Judges is in chapter 21, and it says this, In those days Israel had no king, and all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And man, that is where a lot of the church is today. Without a king, doing what seems right in their own eyes. Compromising the truth of God's word. Compromising their faith. Compromising their salvation. And yes, I said salvation because I don't know, it's beyond me, I don't know how in the world that you can have the spirit of God living in you and continually reject the truth of God's word. I don't know how that's possible. The only conclusion I can come up with is that you really don't know what it means to follow Christ and you don't have the Spirit of God living in you. Because if you did, you would follow what God says. You would hold to His truth. Because the truth is, we have a king. We're not kingless. We have a king. He's the king of kings and He's the Lord of lords. And He sacrificed everything. Everything. And died a horrible death on the cross so that you and I could be called sons and daughters of the king. And because of that sacrifice, we're royalty. We're royalty with a calling and a purpose. 1 Peter 2, 9 says this, But you are not like that. He means the world. For you are a chosen people, a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. And as a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you're God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you've received God's mercy. And Peter warns us, he says, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your, your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when, when God judges the world. See, just like the Israelites, we're God's chosen people, set apart to show the world God's goodness. We're called out of the darkness into this world of light to be light to the world around us. We exist to display with word and deed the amazing nature of God. We are called to be different from this world. We are aliens here. This is not our home And we're not meant to be comfortable here. Do you hear what I'm saying? This is not our home and we're not meant to be comfortable here. We are called to be different, look different from the world. And if we don't, if we're not, if we don't look different, how will we change the world? We can't. That means no compromise when it comes to God's word. It means no compromise when it comes to following God's word. It means no compromise when it comes to serving God. Compromise is a path to destruction, and it has no place in our relationship with God. God does not bargain. He doesn't bargain, and it's as simple as that. 
So as the band comes up, I want to leave you with this. If we truly want to fulfill God's vision for our lives, and I hope you do, I hope you want to be everything God's called you to be. If we truly want to change the direction of our society, and I hope you do, I hope you want to change the way our nation is going. If we want to be free from the sin that burdens our lives, then the compromise that we allow in our lives has to stop. It just does. It has to stop. We have to stop making excuses for not following God's truth. We have to stop living in two worlds, and we have to come to God with broken hearts and broken minds and repent of our wrong thinking and actions. See, it's only then, it's only then that God will be able to work through us and through this church to do his will. Let's let's not be that generation that walks away from God and no longer acknowledges him. Let's not be the generation that does what's right in our own eyes. Let's not be the church that fails to be salt and light to a world that desperately needs to know the love of a Savior. Let's be the church that really lives sent, that lives sin in our community and world and shares the love of God by being different, by being set apart. Let's be the church that stands for truth, the church that fulfills God's commandments by bringing the good news of the gospel to a dying world. Let's be who God has called us to be without compromise. Let's pray. Father, that is my prayer today, is that we will be a church without compromise. Lord, that we will stand firm and fast on your truth and on your word. God, that we will not be the generation that walks away from you, but we will be a generation that stands for you, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it costs us, Lord. Help us to fulfill that. Help us to be all that you've called us to be. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship.